Thank you, Aaron. Wonderful tonight. Wonderful worship tonight. So we continue on in our series in Genesis this week. This week we'll be going through Genesis 13 and 14. We'll start at verse 13-2. Uh, we went through 13-1 last week as we saw the end of the kind of story of Abram coming back from Egypt. And if you remember, we talked about kind of the setup of the Abraham cycle, the setup of the Abraham stories that really go from Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 25. But here in these early moments, in Genesis 12, we said that there was a, a kind of tri-blessing, a tri-promise that God gives. And it's the name of this series, A Land, A Seed, A Blessing. God promises three things to Abram. He's going to give him a land to call his own. He's going to give him a seed, descendants. A descendant in particular, right? This child, Isaac, we're going to hear about in the next chapters. And then, of course, a blessing. This wonderful blessing that's called that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abram. And then we talked about this kind of odd story, this, this giving of Sarai to, uh, to the, well, really taking of Sarai by the, by the Pharaoh of Egypt, and, and what that story is all about. And I, I submitted to you that the story ultimately is a precursor. It's a pre-enactment, I called it, of the Exodus, right? Abram has gone down into Egypt. His wife is taken. She is the oppressed Israel in this instance. And she is freed by the Lord, the main actor who frees her. And when she's freed, they walk out with plunder, right? The Pharaoh has made Abram rich. And he leaves the land. He leaves the land of Egypt wealthy with much, uh, much given to him from the Egyptians, right? That's the Exodus story, right? And so right at the beginning of Abram, in Abram's stories, we have these major setups, these three blessings, these three promises that are coming of a land, a seed, and a blessing, and the Exodus story foreshadowed, right? Very important. What I told you was a land, a seed, a blessing is significant because it actually shapes Abraham's story. And it's interesting. that You're going to see them kind of uh, melded together. Sometimes you'll hear promises of the land and the seed, and they come up together. But there really does tend to be a focus at each part of Abraham's story on a specific element of that tribal, that tri-promise, right? Of that triple promise that he's given. And the focus tonight, as we go from Genesis 13.2 to 14.24, is on the land. The focus is on what the land promise is and what God is doing in Abram's life to bring about this land promise. So that's the focus as we do tonight. And next week, when we see Genesis 15, you'll actually see that the Lord covenants with Abram specifically about the land. It's a specific covenant about the land. We'll see that next week. But this week, we're going to hear the story of, of Abram and Lot in their separation, and then this odd war of the kings that shows up in Genesis 14. So, in Genesis 13, the end of this story, it says this now uh, uh, from last week. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel, 
to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now again, this is kind of that close to the last story we read about. And what's interesting about this close is what? It still confirms that Exodus theory we had, right? What's the point? What's the very first thing Abram's going to do when he gets out of the land of Egypt? He's going to go back to the altar he made to worship, right? What's the constant cry of Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh? Let my people go so that they may worship me. They may worship me. And Abram, just like his much later descendants, leaves Egypt to go back to Bethel, the, the altar he had made there when he first entered the land of Canaan. And he goes back there to worship and sacrifice. It's the Exodus story, right? This is the completion of it. He goes down to Egypt. He's released. He's exodus out of it, right? right? Sarai's released and redeemed. And they go out rich. And he goes to, to sacrifice and worship. Back to the altar he had made. So, then this account comes up. This next story. Which is this. Now Lot. Lot who went with Abram. Now who's Lot again? Remember, Lot is his nephew. His brother Haran died in Ur. Or excuse me, died in the land, in the city named after him. It's named Haran, right? A city that was, had the same name as him. And so he died there. And so Lot, by the actual standard um, custom of the day, Lot would be Terah, which is Abram's father. He would be Terah's son. He would be treated like Terah's son. But Abram really has... By all accounts, it looks like he's adopted Lot like his own son, right? He's taken his brother's son really into his own home. And when Abram goes to the land of Canaan, Lot goes with him. And when he goes to Egypt, even though he's not in the story, it's clear Lot's gone with him. And when they come back, Lot's still with him. Now we're going to have a story that actually deals with the separation of Lot and Abram, which should be odd considering we've seen them together this whole time. Right? So what's the point of this story? I'll tell you when we get to it. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Lot was also a rich man. He was a wealthy man. The Lord has blessed them, right? That's the point. The Lord has blessed them. They are wealthy. They are well off. But they're also nomadic people, right? They're, they're wandered. They're shepherds. They have their herds and their flocks that they need to pasture. And once it says this, the land could not sustain them while dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. So Lot and Abram can't even live in the same space. They don't have enough grass to even feed their livestock, right? So what's going to happen? It says there's strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And then there's a, a little side note. Now, the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So the original inhabitants are still there. And Lot and Abram are there. So there is just no space. There's no room for them. They've got to separate. They've got to separate. They've, it, isn't that odd? The blessing of the Lord has made them so prosperous that they actually have to remove from each other. They have to, they have to distance from each other because they're so wealthy. But Abram, he, he reacts to his nephew like this. Listen to the generosity of Abram. One thing that should be noted is Abram is, of course, the elder, right? 
Now that may not mean much to us in our society, but that means something very significant in that day and age, which is this. As the elder, he has first right to whatever he decides. He has the first right. Lot will get whatever's left. Abram has the first right. But listen to the generosity of Abraham here, of Abram. Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, I will go to the right. And if to the right, I will go to the left. What is Abram doing? He's giving his nephew first choice. This is a man of generosity. He's letting his nephew, his younger, go before him to pick what he would choose of the land. And so what does Lot do? It says he lifted up his eyes and he looks all around and he saw the valley of the Jordan. He sees the Jordan Valley. In the Jordan Valley, it was well watered everywhere. Now it has a little side note. We haven't gotten to the story yet, but it's a very well-known story. The people reading this already know. Hey, by the way, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Sodom and Gomorrah still exist and they're well watered. It looks like the garden of the Lord. It's lush. It's like Eden. It looks like Egypt as you go down to Zoar. It's beautiful. Egypt has the Nile River that runs through it, which keeps everything fertile and beautiful and lush. And so what does Lot do? He looks down and he sees this land's kind of dry and dusty and doesn't seem like it's very nice. But this place, it's beautiful. It's like Eden, it's paradise. There's orchards and fruit and palms and all the good things of the earth. And Lot sees that and he's like, man, that looks good. I'll take that. I'll take that piece in the Jordan Valley. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and he moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. That's foreshadowing what's about to happen, right? What's the point of this? as it relates to Abram. Well, one significant thing, like I told you, for all, all accounts, it looks like Abram has adopted Lot. Their separation leaves Abram without an heir. Lot was to be his heir, to receive the inheritance of his household, and it seems like the separation means that Lot lives somewhere else with his own people and his own wealth, and Abram is now living. It's like Lot leaving his father's house. He's setting out on his own. And now Abram is childless. Again, with no one to inherit from him. His line is stopped. Because remember what we read at the beginning of the Abraham account. Sarai was barren. He has no one to inherit. 
But Lot sees this beautiful land and he goes down to the, the, the valley of the Jordan. And Abram sees Canaan. And one certainly looks a lot better than the other to the eye. But we see this little note. Now get this, the men of Sodom, they're evil. They're wicked people. And what Lot saw as a good land is actually a wicked place. What he thought would be the best of the land, well, according to this note we just saw, it's going to get destroyed. Right? The Lord, this is before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, the Lord speaks to Abram now and says, after Lot had separated from Abram, the Lord speaks and says, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Look northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. The point is this, Lot has gone off. And what's interesting is Lot's descendants, that land that he chose, those valley lands into the east of the Jordan, that does become Lot's descendants' allotted portion. The land that Lot chose, God honors as Lot's, even after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so you have Moab and Ammon end up in the Transjordan, exactly where Lot had chosen his land. But this land of Canaan, it's Abram's. It's going to be Abram's descendants after him. It will belong to them. Right? And here you see the seed promise intermingling with the land, right? What's the point of the land? So that you can be a people. Right? They, they, they get intermixed. But the focus here is on the land. Abram, walk through it. See it. Take note of it because it's going to be yours. Go through its width and breadth and see what it's like for it will be your land. It looks like Abram's generosity has cost them something, doesn't it? It looks like Abram has said, I'm left with this barren garbage land and Lot chose the fertile beautiful land Sodom and Gomorrah it looks like Lot got the better end of that deal but it's a principle that's long held true and I'm, I'm sure you've probably seen it in your life but it is true that the Lord even when it feels like we have, have gotten the short end of the stick. We've gotten the worst end of a deal. Even then the Lord may be protecting us from something. Lot chooses the best piece of land because he thinks this is going to go well for me. And by the end of this story, when we get to Genesis 18 and 19, he's left with nothing. Sodom and Gomorrah are completely wrecked. And he loses everything he had. All he's left with is the life of him and his daughters. And of course, that becomes a very sordid story itself. But that's all he's left with. He chose the best thing, or what he thought would be the best thing for him. And it was to his ruin. 
the Lord honors Abram's generosity. He says, this land is going to be yours. And he upholds that promise to Abram. He upholds it. And he honors Abram because he's a generous man. So, Genesis 14. This is the story of the War of the Kings. And it still has to do with the lands, though it seems like an odd interjection. I'll explain how. I named this, the title of this week, uh, week's sermon is Sodom and Salem. Sodom and Salem. There are two cities we're going to see come up in this account. By the end of this account of Genesis 14, we'll see these two cities. And we'll think about the comparison in relation to Abram. Okay. It came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, which is Babylon, by the way. The king of Babylon, Ariok, king of Elasar, Hedor Leomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Now, a lot of names, a lot of places. What's going on is that these much bigger kingdoms, right? These are all kind of city-states at this time. They all have their own king, right? They're, little, they're cities with kings. So they all have their own little states. And what's going on is that these bigger cities from Babylon, from Elam, which is modern-day kind of Iraq and Iran, that area, are coming down into the land of Canaan. They're coming down in the Transjordan and conquering these peoples. They're taking over them. They're... they're uh, raiding them, perhaps, right? And so when they come down, it says that they made war with the king of Sodom and Gomorrah. These are all places in the Jordan Valley. So we should be remembering that Lot just was there. Lot just chose this land to be his land. This would be his inheritance. And now all of a sudden, these great city-states from afar are coming and attacking the Jordan Valley. That should be in the back of our minds as we read this. So there's these war, and, and these kings from the east, from the northeast, they're, when they're coming down, it says they're destroying the land. Listen to what it says. All these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years, Sodom and Gomorrah and all these four city-states, they had served Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. So they were already defeated. They were serving him as vassals. For 12 years, they served him. And, but in the 13th, they are like, let's break the shackles of being under oppression. Let's fight against them. So in the 14th year, Hederleomer and the kings that were with him, they, they, they're going to do something about this rebellion. And so again, they go down and they just wreck everyone. It says they defeat the Rephaim in Ashtoreth Karnaim. They defeat the Suzim. They defeat the Emim. And then the Horites in Mount Seir, which will become Edom later on. As far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And when they go down that entire Transjordan Valley and defeat everyone, what do they do? Then they turn back and they come up into the land of Canaan to end Mishpat, that is Kadesh. Kadesh Barnea, if you know it. This is a significant site for the wilderness wanderings. This is in the south of Israel. And they conquered all the country of the Amalekites and the Amorites who live in Hazazon, Tamar. 
But the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zoboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar, came out, and they went to battle. Right? So now you've got four kings against five. Right? All these five kings from the east and four kings from the Transjordan Valley are going to meet at the Dead Sea and fight. And these five kings from the east have wrecked them. They conquered them for 12 years and defeated all of them. And they had them as vassals for 12 years. And now they're coming back because they rebelled and they're going to crush them again. Twice. Twice they have crushed the Jordan Valley. Right? So the Valley of Sidim was full of tar pits. This is the battle. It's very brief. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into the tar pits. Now, it doesn't mean that the kings themselves die, per se, because we know the king of Sodom is going to show up again. But it means that they were, they were routed. They were sent fleeing. But those who survived fled to the hill country. And what did they do? They did like any warring state. They took spoils. So they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their food supply, and departed. And just like we thought, hey, Lot was just down there. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Okay, so now we've seen twice that these kings from the east are powerful enough to make them their slaves for 12 years and come back when they rebel and wipe them all out. Twice they've defeated the Jordan Valley. It, this is, narrative is pumping up how strong these kings are from the east. But a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318. And he went in pursuit of these kings as far as Dan. Now Dan is the traditional most northern part of the land of Israel. When the Israelites come in, that's considered the northernmost point of the promised land. Where was he living? He was living, living in Hebron at the time. Abram was when he got this news. Hebron is in the southland of, of Israel. It's in the very south part of it. What's the point? What had God just told Abram to do? He told him to search out the land, to see it. To go through its width and its breadth and see it. And now, with Lot being captured, Abram travels through the entire land of Israel, from Hebron up to Dan, and sees the land that's going to be his as he pursues these kings to take back his nephew, who he loves, right? He's seeing the land. That's what's going on. That's the point of this narrative. Abram is seeing the land that has been promised to him, even though it's in a, in a very different fashion than he might expect as he tries to pursue these kings to retrieve his, his nephew. So it says, he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated these kings. Remember, these kings have defeated the whole valley twice. Abram, blessed by God with his 318 men, defeats these five kings because he is blessed by the Lord. And he pursues them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. 
And he brought back all the goods and brought back Lot with all Lot's possessions and all the women and the people. Everyone that had been taken captive, he brings them all back. Abram defeats these, who no one could stand up to. Abram the Hebrew, by the power of God, is able to defeat them because he's blessed of the Lord. And then we have this odd story of, a, of kind of a mythic figure almost, of Melchizedek is going to come out, this, this king of Salem. So, he returns from the defeat. This is Abram. He returns from the defeat of Hedor Leomer and the kings who were with him. And the king of Sodom goes out to meet Abram at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. So the king of Sodom has come out to meet Abram. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brings out bread and wine. Now, now Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. Right? The Hebrew there is El Elyon. El Elyon. And Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be El Elyon, God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all that he had. Okay. Next portion. We're going to talk about this whole section, but I want to read the other half of this, of this uh, piece before we go back. The king of Sodom, right? So the king of Salem, Melchizedek, has just come out with bread and wine, blessed him, and then been given a tenth. The king of Sodom says to Abram, give the people to me. And take goods for yourself. Take whatever spoils you want from the war. Give me the people, take the spoils. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord, which is the covenant name from Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, God most high, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you, the king of Sodom, would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Let them take their share. Okay. Here where it says Yahweh El Elyon, what that's trying to do is connect the God of Israel with the God that Melchizedek worships, right? Melchizedek keeps calling him El Elyon, and unless you know that that's also the God of Israel, you might think they're different gods. So when Abram speaks, he connects them. Yahweh, the God of Israel, in Moses' day, is this El Elyon that Melchizedek speaks of, God Most High. They're connecting them. They're the same God. Melchizedek is a Gentile priest of God. That's significant. He's a non-Jew who is a priest of Yahweh. Really important. Really important. Okay? Melchizedek. But look at the significance of these two responses. Look at the significance of these two responses. They are different. Melchizedek, I told you, was king of Salem. The king of Sodom is obviously the king of Sodom. You have two places 
Sodom and Salem. And two different reactions to Abram. The king of Salem comes out and he brings a meal. He brings bread and wine that they might have a feast. For Abram's victory was from God Most High. And not only does that, he, he not only brings a meal, he blesses Abram. He says, you are blessed by God. And then Abram, in response to the blessing, gives him a tenth of everything. What is the response of the king of Sodom? The response of the king of Sodom. By comparison, it it's, seems kind of stingy almost, doesn't it? Whose stuff did Abram just rescue? It wasn't the king of Salem. The king of Salem had no connection to what was going on. He had just rescued all the people of Sodom. And it seems like the king of Sodom could care less. He says, give me the people and take your spoils and get out of here, basically. Just give me your people and you take what you want. Which Abram had a right to, didn't he? He was the victor. He was the conqueror. He had a right to the spoils. And in fact, he still says, my friends who went with me, let them take their share. But I won't take a dime. I won't take anything. Because I would not let anyone tell me that it was you who made me rich, but the Lord, the, the God most high who has made me. Uh, prosperous, right? But Sodom, whose entire city and all their possessions and all the people were just saved, it, it's almost disdainful of Abram. Take your spoils and give me my people and let's be on our way. Okay. What's significant about that relates to the land. Like I told you, this section is about the land. They are kings of two different places. What are those two different places? We have the king of Sodom, and his response to Abram is lackluster, maybe even disdainful. And we have the king of Salem who comes out, and he is bringing a feast for Abram. He is blessing him. He is all in on, on loving and and showing kindness and blessing to Abram. What is Salem, by the way? Does that sound familiar? Salem is what becomes Jerusalem. Salem is what becomes Jerusalem. This Melchizedek is a priest king, a priest and a king of the city of Jerusalem before it's inhabited by Israelites. This is when Gentiles still live in the city of Jerusalem, and he is a priest king of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, do you remember what was said to Abram in the promises? What was said to Abram was, those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you I will curse. This passage is foreshadowing the fates of Sodom and Salem. These two men, the king of Sodom and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, they represent the land that they are king over. And Sodom, the king of Sodom, who is so uncaring towards Abram, who is so uh, 
unresponsive and ungrateful for what Abram has just done for him, we're going to see what happens to Sodom in chapter 19. But already in our minds as we read this story, we should be like, hey, something's up with Sodom. We've been told they're exceedingly wicked. His response to Abram seems totally ungrateful. Something's going to happen to Sodom. And the Lord's already told us, those who curse you, I will curse. And those who bless you, I will bless. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, comes out and blesses Abram. And what's going to happen to Salem? That becomes Jerusalem. It becomes the city of God itself. It becomes the city of God. Salem, that is run by this Gentile priest king, blesses Abram, and, and because of his response to Abram, Salem is a blessed city. And it becomes Jerusalem, the city of God, the very city in which God's temple will reside, right? The, the temple that will come. M many, many years later, the temple will come, and it will be set up in Jerusalem. But these threads are being woven, even in Genesis 14, that the land that these people uh, re represent, the king of Sodom, the king of Salem, and their response to Abram is determining their future. It's about the land. Abram is God's chosen. And even here, remember, even here, that same generosity we saw with Lot, Abram shows here, right? He has a right to take a share of the spoil, but he won't. He lets the king of Sodom, this ungrateful, wicked, evil man, he lets him take back his possession. He lets him take back all the goods, take back all the people. And he says, you have it. I will not take anything from you, for I trust in the Lord. I will not let anyone say that they made me rich. Mm. It's God who has prospered me. Mm -hmm. But this is foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing, one, what type of man Abram is. He is a man of hospitality, a man of generosity, and he is blessed for it. And he's an example for us of what generosity and hospitality gives us, what, it, what, it, what kind of reward it breeds in our lives to be a person of generosity, a person of hospitality. And also, the response to Abram is determining the fate of these lands because the Lord loves him and is blessed. And then he says, those who curse you, they will be cursed, and those who bless you, they will be blessed. And it's this portion... This odd little odd story in Genesis 14 that Hebrews 7 is going to pick up and say what? That Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Why does it say that? Who are the priesthood in Israel? The priesthood in Israel are Levites. They have to be from the tribe of Levi. Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. So how can he be a priest? How can Jesus be a high priest? Well, the author of Hebrews is searching the scriptures to try to answer that question. And what's the conclusion he comes to? He says, no, no, no. <laughs> Jesus isn't a, of the Levitical priesthood. He's not a Levite. He's a priest like Melchizedek. He's a priest king. 
He's the king of Salem. He's a priest of God Most High. This Melchizedek, he's kind of a mysterious figure. He just shows up out of the blue, right? There's never a mention of him before he shows up. There's never any kind of reference to him. And he's never mentioned again. Except in Psalm 110. And then when we get to the New Testament, he's mentioned in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. But he says he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's tying together, just like Melchizedek, that Jesus is a priest and a king together. But it says about Jesus that, just like Melchizedek, without genealogy, without telling us how this man was born, how he died, any of this stuff, he's, he's a priest forever. He's a priest forever. This Melchizedek, he just showed up out of the blue. And he says, that's an allusion to Jesus. The priest king who was to come. Melchizedek points us to that reality. King of Salem. You know what king of Salem means? Salem is shalom. It's king of peace. Melchizedek. Melchizedek. It means king of righteousness. Hebrews says both of those. His name by translation means king of righteousness. And he's the king of Salem, the king of peace. It applies all those realities to Jesus in Hebrews 7. The point is that Jesus is going to fulfill these blessings of Abram here, isn't it? Jesus becomes this priest king just like Melchizedek. But as far as Genesis is concerned, what it's trying to communicate is that what way you're responding to this man of God will be determinative for your future. If you're against Abram, if you're against the chosen of the Lord, it's going to go bad for you. But if you bless him and you're for the chosen of the Lord, good things will come. And of course, that's why the New Testament looks to these moments with Abram and they see Jesus. When the New Testament thinks about Jesus and looks back on, their, on these moments, they see Christ. They're not saying Melchizedek was Jesus. They're saying you look back and you can see Jesus when you look at Melchizedek. Jesus is a man like him, a priest and a king, king of peace, king of Salem, king of righteousness, just like his name says. And the New Testament looks back to these accounts of Abram specifically again and again and again to understand the realities of the New Covenant. Why? Because Abram is operating on faith before the law. The same faith that we have to have in the New Testament. In the New Covenant. The same faith that we have to have. Abram's operating on that faith. And that's significant to the New Testament. But as far as Abram is concerned, as we read Genesis 14, it's showing us the future trajectory of the land. He is being shown the land that will be his, and those around him who are responding to him are determining their futures based on their response to him. Abram is a significant figure, significant figure in the Bible. One of the most significant. Next week we'll see that he's going to have the land covenanted. Lord, the Lord is not just going to promise 
that he's going to give him the land. He's going to covenant to give him the land. And we'll see that in Genesis 15. Right. Let me pray for you. Let me bless you. Lord, thank you for each person here tonight. Thank you for the chance to, to go through this somewhat obscure passage uh, and think about the promise of the land. Think about the fact that you give your people a place to be, a place to live, a place to call their own. You do not leave us as foreigners and immigrants forever, as nomads forever, but you give us a home. It's like Hebrews says later on about Abram when it gets to Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12, and it's talking about this great host of people who lived in the Old Testament. And it says, Abram himself was not content to have a city who was built, it was just built by man, but a city, he was looking for a city whose maker and builder was God. Lord, would you help us not to be content? Help us not to be content to just have what is here in the earthly, in the temporary, in the temporal. Lord, we look for the eternal. We look for the everlasting, knowing that one day the city of the people of God will be established here on earth that heaven and earth will become one, and the city that is your throne we will dwell in forever, face to face with you. The ultimate hope that we will be in the presence of the triune God forever in the city called by his name. We look forward to that day, God. Would you help each of us to reach that day? Help us to continue forward. And while we're here, would we take the advice of Abraham, would we take the, the lifestyle example of him and be people of generosity and hospitality? People who invite in immigrants and foreigners and strangers and sojourners, we invite them into our lives to make them feel welcome, to make them feel like they belong, to make them feel like they have a space and a place that is theirs. Would you help us to do that like Abram? I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank mm -hmm. you.